Welcome to the Nanalyze podcast. We are a boutique media and research firm specializing in disruptive innovation. Visit nanalyze.com for more details. Global stocks are the topic of today's presentation. And you can probably use the term foreign stocks interchangeably, though what's foreign differs depending on what country you're in. So if you're in the U.S., then the world's your oyster when it comes to investing in global markets. But if you're in Eritrea, then there is no banking system and you can't even do anything with your money except stuff it underneath your mattress. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about global perspectives. And there's this notion in finance of domestic bias, which is tending to invest in things that are familiar to you. Now, I put up this picture here with this slogan, are you Chinese or Japanese? This refers to a King of the Hill episode in which Hank is out in his yard and his neighbor's from Laos, and Hank asks his neighbor, so are you Chinese or Japanese? And his neighbor says, "Uh, I'm from Laos. It's a small landlocked country in Asia. And Hank thinks for a second, he says, so are you Chinese or Japanese? And it's this perspective that... Asian people uh, come from one of two places. Well, here's a thought exercise. What percentage of the world's population do you think are Asian? So maybe 20%, 30%. Well, the answer is quite surprising. And this really puts Asian Month, which was in May, into perspective. Half the people promoting Asian Month don't have a clue what Asia looks like. This is what Asia looks like. So around 60% of the world's people are celebrated during that month. I don't know when we celebrate the other 40%. But uh, this is what Asia looks like. And you can see how it's broken down into regions. And when we start to look at population In these different regions, you can see that Southern Asia is dominated by India, and next is Pakistan and Bangladesh, and then you have Eastern Asia, of course, dominated by China, followed by Japan. So when we think about investing in Asia, we certainly can't take a population approach. That's not going to work. So how do we invest in Asia? Well, we need to understand the difference between developed and emerging markets. So the picture that you see here, this is one of the few developed markets in Asia. It's Hong Kong. I remember looking at this picture when I was very little, thinking to myself, boy, I'd love to live there. And I'm now a citizen of, proud citizen of Hong Kong. And when we think about the world's markets, we divide them into developed and emerging. So let's talk about emerging first. So in the early uh That says 1980s. This was taken from a Reuters article. Uh, This Dutch economist wanted to launch a third world investment fund, but didn't think that name was catchy enough. So he came up with a more upbeat emerging markets. In 1985, the first index tracking these stocks was launched. And a couple years later, MSCI, that's where I worked for a decade, created its own benchmark. And that's where I learned all about how to break up the world's stocks into categories. Now, fund managers were promoting this new emerging markets asset class uh, that on the promise that it would have higher rates of economic growth across the developing world and and um, be accompanied by superior equity returns. And I recall in the uh, turn of the the century there, Goldman Sachs forecasting the economy, brick economies there would overtake the developed world within decades. Now, what's interesting about emerging markets investing is that the correlation 
Let's say the trailing one-year correlation between emerging and developed markets is around 0.4. They're not very correlated. That diversification is great for portfolios, and the long-term average sits somewhere around there. Now, when we look at emerging markets, we start to break the world down into countries. You can see here countries and regions, the Americas. Those are the emerging markets there, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru. Then you have Europe, Middle East, and Africa, a list of countries there, and then Asia. Now, what matters is how MSCI weights countries in their indices, and they do it by market cap, so by size. That makes sense. So when you look at the country weighting for emerging markets, this is where things start to uh, take form. So you see China's uh, around 29%, Taiwan 16%. Taiwan is an emerging market. This was a uh, this was a topic that was raised a lot when I worked at MSCI by our clients, and it's a discussion that starts to delve into politics very quickly. But you can see that 45% of emerging markets exposure now is to China and Taiwan, followed by India at 14%. So when you look at the migration of uh, market cap between these two different or these this set of countries over, let's say, the last 15 years, you can see how China and India and Taiwan have moved up significantly whilst Russia has fallen. And so has Brazil, along with a number of other countries here. Now, you may be tempted to think that Russia's fall was in the past several years when the war started, but that's been ongoing for a while. And here you can see how over time, the weight of Russia in the emerging market index has been falling, and there's a number of reasons for that. MSCI produces research papers that talk about this sort of thing. But let's now talk about the global universe of stocks, and MSCI calls this ACWI, All Country World Index, Investable Market Index. IMI stands for all sizes. That's a way a standard at MSCI is simply large and mid, and IMI refers to all caps where you include small as well. Here you can see that their global universe of stocks, MSCI Acqui IMI, represents 99% of the investable global equity market. Okay, so pretty much everything is in here. In this set of stocks, you have 23 developed market countries, 24 emerging market countries which implies that you might have a weighting of 50-50. Well, that's not how it actually turns out. Interestingly enough, around 59% of the total market cap of the entire investable global equity market is the United States. So if you were to distribute your funds across the globe, then 69 or 59% of those funds would be in the United States. Now we can look here at this chart, which shows the breakdown a whole lot better what I wanted to point to here was something interesting. The emerging markets that we talked about, right, the BRICS, they make up 11% of global equities, so quite a small amount. So a 10% allocation of your money, if you were investing in global equities to an emerging market ETF, would cover that. Um, so if we back out emerging markets and then we have developed markets, and there's an entire set of literature you can read as to how MSCI distinguishes between the two. It comes down to managing risk, really. But we want to look at developed markets ex-USA. So we know USA is 59% of the entire universe. We know then that emerging markets is another 11%, so you're at 70%. What does the other 30% look like? Well, 
What's interesting to note, before we get into looking at developed markets, it's interesting to note the performance of these indices over time. And here you can see how the entire universe has performed uh, there in blue, okay? And then the developed markets only has outperformed the entire universe by just a little bit. And then look at how emerging markets has performed. Not so well. So when you combine emerging markets and MSCI World, which is developed markets, then you get Acqui and you see how the emerging markets 10% drags down that overall number a bit. So if you had invested 50% of your money in developed, 50% in emerging, you'd be suffering a whole lot worse than the MSCI Acqui number that you see here. So when it comes to our approach for global equities investing. When you look at your portfolio of wealth, you should break it down into asset classes, which is what we've done here. So Quantigence is our dividend growth investing strategy. That accounts for about 58% of our total assets under management. And those stocks, there's 30 stocks in that portfolio, well, 29 right now, because we're looking to add a stock when uh, VF Corporation stopped increasing their dividend. But we look for multinational firms in order to provide some international diversification. Then we have Nanalyze. This would be our disruptive tech portfolio. There's around 37 tech stocks in there. And then I've highlighted a number of things here, Europe funds and Asia funds. So these are actually domiciled in the UK and Hong Kong, respectively, to um, manage systemic risk, really, but also because... Um, Having your money inside those markets, especially in the case of Hong Kong, allows you to invest in things that you might not be able to otherwise. So there's no sense in me telling you what our Hong Kong domiciled account, uh, which is owned by a Hong Kong citizen, what access or what funds were invested in, because that w wouldn't be applicable to 95% of the people watching this video. So instead, we put out a video, and I'll link to it at the end of this presentation, that looks at the best Asian ETFs to buy. And when the other thing that we've noted here, uh, gold at 1.5%, we're actually looking to swap that out to something more relevant. But the point here is that around 13% of our assets are in global uh, stock funds for Europe and Asia, those two regions. Now, what you also need to remember is that global exposures can be hidden. A great example of that is if you take a look at where Aflac makes their money and their exposure to Japan, or if you look at any multinational corporation, you start to break down where their revenues are coming from by geography. Now, foreign stocks as well that we hold, such as Bico Group or TeamViewer, uh, these are invested in using interactive brokers where we actually hold those stocks in their native currencies on foreign exchanges. So you need to consider that as well. So if we were to take all our assets and try to figure out our exposures, we might use something like the BARA integrated model. This was something that I worked very closely with at MSCI. We had developed this when they acquired BARA. And essentially, it was this risk model that could analyze 
all your assets across all asset classes and then start to aggregate your exposures, for example, your commodity exposures or country exposures, it was a super useful tool. Now, most people don't have access to that, but it's just a way of thinking about your portfolio and understanding that a lot of times the exposures that you're getting aren't so obvious. So our take on global stocks is really this. Um, domestic bias doesn't happen much abroad. So I've been to all the developed markets and I've studied and worked in um, several of them. And what you find is that familiarity doesn't really translate to a desire to invest. So when I was living in the UK, uh, I knew about Boots. It was a familiar name, but I didn't feel like I wanted to invest in Boots. And it's almost as if domestic bias really comes about from culture more so than just living in a particular place. So, for example, in Japan, everything seems like a good idea, but you don't necessarily find yourself saying, gee, I want to invest in this Japanese firm that I think is doing something really innovative. Uh, for example, Cafe Corral in Hong Kong. It's, a, it's an amazing fast food concept. I remember the first time that I saw it, I wanted to invest in it. That may be the, one of the only uh, items that I, brands that I came across where I was really excited about. Uh, that doesn't mean it's a good investment. Now, I think when you live in another culture, you lack that cultural interpretation and it becomes very difficult to start trying to pick stocks. You're at a disadvantage when you're assessing foreign investment opportunities, a, a form of, I suppose, reverse domestic bias. Um, the reporting alone makes it a barrier to entry, especially in places like Japan, where you try to read through their financial reports, you can't understand half of what they're saying. So our take on global stocks is this. And remember, global has a different definition uh, for everyone. If it's not your native culture, you're probably better off investing in a region or a country using an ETF. And when you think about investing in global stocks, going back to our examination of emerging markets, 10% allocation is probably where you ought to be. Again, you know, a lot of people look at places like Brazil and think, wow, there's a lot of potential reward there, sure, but there's also a lot of risk. Now, these are uh, developed markets, and these are of the type that you might consider investing in uh, when you're looking for global exposure. And we'll probably look to do a follow-up piece that uh, digs into uh, some of these countries or regions. Now, Another thing to consider here that's quite interesting, MSCI puts out this correlation matrix across all countries, and you can see how, look at Pakistan there. So you can just spot the red bar about uh, three quarters of the way down on this chart. There's Pakistan. It's not correlated to anything else. That's because uh, Pakistan's a, a kind of a crazy place. And Colombia, you see, isn't really correlated. So this is interesting. Up in the upper left there, you see Canada and USA. They have a pretty strong correlation. Some academics argue against that. Of course, it's you can always torture the data and make it say anything you want, but MSCI is a very reliable data provider, and their research team is um, recognize industry-wide as being extremely competent. So um, uh, this is certainly something useful to look at. Now, what else is uh, interesting on the topic of MSCI's research team is when they start moving companies around. So you can see here, for example, at the bottom, Pakistan went from frontier markets. That's like 
That's like the tier below emerging markets. They went from frontier to emerging, and then something happened. You see, that was in May of 2017. Then you see something happened here where they moved them again from emerging to frontier, uh, what, four years later. So um, you can see where Russia went from emerging markets to standalone in March 2022 because of the war. So it's interesting to see how they shuffle countries around in their allocations. But uh, just to conclude, you're really better off getting foreign exposure using ETFs. Now, half of our audience hails from outside the United States, so their concept of a foreign stock will be different from yours. But um, what we're going to do next, I think, to follow up on this topic is to dig into global dividend growth champions, in particular those that exist uh, in Europe, because that's something a lot of people have asked for. So um, I'm going to put up another video on the Asian funds. Uh, that I talked about. Before I do that, please click the Nanalyze logo on the right, subscribe to our channel, and then watch the video on the left. Thanks so much for taking the time to watch this today. Thank you for listening to the Nanalyze podcast. If you found this information useful, please share this episode with a friend. This helps us to continue to provide thorough research for you. Want more research like this? Want to know what we're invested in and what stocks we're avoiding? Head to Nanalyze.com and consider becoming a premium annual subscriber to get access to premium articles, webinars, and our extensive tech stock catalog. Thank you for your time.